I mean, I worked with people who were teachers, lawyers, civil servants, and then decided, got to a point in their life when they were like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do something more creative. And so they start a candle business or a clothing business or a kids wear business. So they're not coming from a retail background. They're not coming from that knowledge. And what they're looking at and is focusing on is sales, which it is all about sales. It's all about desirability, which for me means desirability, exactly as you said, with your example of a bottle of water. It's about knowing what your customer wants and being there when they need it. But it's just not something that's built into the way that they're thinking about it to kind of go, well, hang on a minute, how much stock have I got? Lots of people don't even keep inventory records, so they don't even necessarily know. So switching it around a little bit and focusing in on things like setting yourself targets. And as you said, discipline. It's ironic. So many people start their own business because they don't want to have a boss. But then actually sometimes what they need is that slight element of discipline that they either have to enforce upon themselves or find someone to work with who can help them enforce that as well. But it's about that discipline then about saying, right, I am going to pay myself actually, because that's really, really important for my motivation and for my long-term health of my business. And as a result, I'm going to have to be a bit more creative and I am going to have to sell the stock that I've had sitting around, which I'm maybe not excited about because that's the other thing, going back to what you were saying, I think we get tired of our products and services way quicker than our customers because we see them all the time, right? (laughs) Welcome to the She Is Awesome podcast, the home for women business owners filled with extraordinary stories, giggles, and thoughtful conversations offering inspiring takeaways for your life and your business. Hello, people. In this episode, I am with a fabulous woman who left her shiny corporate career to follow her dreams and created a life of abundance, definitely, flexibility, certainly, and fun, most likely. So how did she do that? Very simple. She has been shining her expertise and knowledge on the creative retail businesses. Catherine Erdley from the Resilient Retail Club. I met Catherine at an awards ceremony and from the first instant we cheered our glasses to our achievements. It felt like I was talking to a friend and we simply had a friendly chat about retail businesses, service businesses, cash flow, creating the life that we wanted to create, and many other stuff. So without further ado, let's kick it off. Hello, Catherine. Welcome. Would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your business for our audience? Thank you so much, Jelan. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everyone. My name is Catherine Erdley. I'm the founder of the Resilient Retail Club, which is my membership group for product businesses. I also work one-to-one with businesses as a consultant. This is my 22nd year in the retail industry and I love it. I still love it. I still find it so exciting. And I specialize in working with people on their sales strategy and their profitability. So everything to do with how do creative ideas make money. All right. Yeah. I'm so, so happy that you accepted this invitation and came to our podcast because it's not very often that I come across really specialized, you know, retail specialized specialists. <laughs> and it's really nice because it's true that actually we have a community that is more service-based. We do have retail 
business is in our community. And I really wanted to actually bring a much more kind of focused attention to their business. So thank you again for being here, accepting my invitation. So Catherine, I met you a few months ago at the Enterprise Nation event and you won an award and that's fantastic. As did did you. (laughs) Yes, we did choose our awards in front of the cameras. That was fantastic. But, you know, I always ask this question and I was doing, of course, a little bit of digging and looking at your LinkedIn. I saw that you had a really strong corporate career. You were a merchandiser. How did you end up in solopreneurship, microbusiness ownership? Oh, yes. Well, it's a really interesting one because I never, ever would have said, even Five years ago, bearing in mind I've been running my own business now for four years, I didn't even think five years ago I would have said that, oh yeah, I'm going to be a business owner. And I know some people I speak to, they have a really strong sense of entrepreneurship and they always growing up were running things or, you know, had little businesses. And so it's always been part of their DNA. Whereas for me, I was very much on the corporate track. You know, I did a business degree. I did international business at Warwick Business School. I joined the retail world straight from university into corporate retail. I worked for 17 years in a variety of different retailers from the UK to the US. And I just always saw myself, if you'd said to me five or six years ago, what's your goal in life? I would have said, look, I want to be a merchandising director. I want to get onto the board of of a retail business. And who knows, you know, where that might take me. But uh, fundamentally, I was always about the next step in the ladder. And then really what happened to me was in 2017, I had been a full-time working mother for 10 years. So I have two children that are older now, so they're 14 and 11. But at that point, I'd taken my maternity leave each time, but I'd gone back to work. I'd done the full-time working mum, commute into London, so dropping the kids off at pre, the pre-breakfast club, breakfast club, you know, the one they opened super early and then running to the station, running into the head office, doing my day's work, leaving at the end of the day, going to pick them up and getting there, you know, one of the last parents to show up, that sort of thing or the wraparound care or the rest of it. I'd done that for 10 years because I really believed, okay, this is an investment in my long-term future. I want to keep going, keep climbing the ladder And I think that in 2017, what happened was a combination of things. Number one, that I had just got really wearing, you know, after 10 years doing it, that this feeling that I was running everywhere. And when you work full time and your partner works full time and you have kids, like you don't just have a plan B, you have to have like a C, a D, an E and an F. (laughs) And so it was always that thing like, you know, what one kid would be sick in the morning. And then my husband and I would like look at each other like, okay, well, I've got this on right now. What have you got on? And, you know, like almost like chicken, like who's going to break first and go, okay, I can take the day off or this kind of thing. Because of course, like in 2017, neither of us had positions where you could work from home very much, right? So at that point, people didn't believe you could work from home and do your job. So it was like very much you had to be in the office. So I think for me, the journey to entrepreneurship was very much almost like a push thing. You know, some people feel really pulled. They feel really compelled to leave, to work on something that really fuels their creativity. For me, I just was, you know, crying in prep with a friend and they said, you know, you have to leave your job. And 
the thing was I had a toxic boss as well. That was a big part of it too. So I think it was like it was doable when it worked. But when things started going wrong, like stresses at work or kids being ill, my daughter had thankfully some very minor health issues, but she did have to have an operation. And the whole process of trying to get time off to, you know, take her to appointments, it all just felt so hard and so difficult. And I think that it just at some point just felt like we just needed to make a change. And I'd spent so, so long telling myself that I was kind of going towards the next level. But yet I would sit in these board meetings, not quite board meetings, but like this kind of executive level meeting. And they were all really stressed and didn't seem like they were enjoying themselves either. So that's a very long way of saying, I think it was more of a push than a pull. I actually left and people in my leaving card, they wrote things like, enjoy your retirement, because I didn't really have like a clear plan to articulate to them about what I wanted to do. I was just like, I'm just going to leave. They're like, okay. I was like, you know, I'll figure it out. And I did take a little time out. I could two or three months after I left to kind of decompress and really think about it. But that's when I just started really thinking, well, I know I want to work with small businesses. I've been really impressed with the small retailers that I'd seen and the things that they were doing that were really innovative. And I asked myself the question, and you know, does my skill set about how to make money from creative ideas, does that have an application for small businesses? And I didn't know the answer. So I started off doing quite a lot of sort of free sessions and talking to people. And the answer was, yes, absolutely. The majority of people who start a creative product business started because they love the creative element. And almost as they get further on their journey, they go, well, hang on a minute. How do I actually make this make money? It's not as simple as it first appears. So actually, yes, those skills that I'd built up over 17 years were actually really useful. And that was when I decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work with product businesses and I'm going to help them with their sales and their profitability. So It was sort of a process. It was like, first, I've just got to leave. Like, I've just got to stop this pressure on me. It's just too much. And I worked a really long notice period. I worked about four months or four or five months even. I I told them I was leaving in the summer, but I didn't want to leave before Christmas because that's such a crucial time. I didn't want to let my team down. So I worked all the way through up through Christmas. And then I just had a bit of headspace to kind of go, all right, well, what can I do? What skills do I have that will be useful? Mm, that's such a great story. And also, it's a very common story with different, mm. you know, with different, of course, flowers into it. But it's kind of, you know, like the, the research of flexibility from mostly mothers, the really kind of unexclusive way corporates used to work, which yep. I am hoping that it's changing now. Maybe maybe one thing that really came out of the, the last two years crisis with COVID is that it's like, actually, there is something that is called flexible working mm-hmm. and it's not unproductive working. You know, it's actually much more productive than not flexible working. Yeah. But these reasons were really the main reasons for many women to quit that corporate life after mm-hmm. having kids, unfortunately. And there are many books that are kind of like showing with tons of data why women are not actually progressing their careers in the corporate life, why they cannot go in the boardrooms that much, or, you know. And those are the same stories over and over. But within yours, what really is striking and what I like is 
you didn't just go saying, right, I have these skills I've done it for corporates. Hang on, I'm going to build my consultancy for corporates and I'll work as a freelance, which you could have done. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you kind of decided to take another approach. And what is really interesting is you actually done market research and you looked for mm-hmm. the needs. So tell me a little bit more about that. So you looked for the need and then you decided that, okay, there's a need. I'm going to start. How did it all start? Do you remember? Okay, okay, okay. This is a great question. Do you remember (laughs) your first paying client? I do. Yes, I do, actually. It's interesting. So I had a sort of very mixed experience, if you like, working with a business coach. And it was one of those experiences that, you know, I paid quite a lot of money at the time. I feel like I just totally walked. Now knowing what I know about sales funnels and sales processes, I totally see how I was walked through it. But because I was you know, there was a certain amount of fear attached to giving up your 17-year career. Although I did always say, my husband and I always said, look, this isn't completely irreversible. I didn't burn any bridges. I was very careful to maintain all relationships so that if I left and after six months was like, I absolutely have to go back, I knew I could. I couldn't now. It's too late now. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I could work for anyone else. But because I was so fearful, I did reach out and I found someone who was running a mastermind and it was about, you know, your six-figure business idea, like all of this sort of stuff. Totally fell for it, line and sinker. The good thing about it, there's two good things that came out of it. Number one, it made me really focus on how I never wanted my clients to feel, which is useful in itself. (laughs) And number two, I think the one thing this person had, which was really good was their approach was you just got to start. And if you don't have the audience, you go somewhere that does have the audience. So the very first thing I did was I set up a meetup group on meetup.com called The Future of Retail. I was really interested in that at the time. Well, I still am, to be honest, but it's not my main focus now, but it's part of what I do. So I was really interested in talking to other people who were curious about where the industry was going. And I started doing these evening events, which started off being, you know, like, 10 people in a bar having a chat and then ended up morphing into something more so that the height of them, we probably had about 80 to 100 people coming to do talks in the evening about the future of retail. So on the one hand, what I did was just start. And I think that is really important. I just started moving because that's how you learn things. And actually some of the connections I made way back then have come into play way later on. So I think that's part of it. I also did a lot of networking. I mean, a lot. Like I was even had this app. I can't even remember the name of it now, but it was kind of like Tinder, but for networking. Like Like you could swipe and agree to be connected with people. Wow. I I had coffee with all kinds of people. And as I said, a lot of the things that happened, I met someone who told me about something else. So one person, for example, I met worked as a freelance consultant for bigger retailers. And at the time, the person that I was doing the mastermind with said to me, like, why are you trying to get money out of small businesses? Like small business owners don't have any money. You need to go and pitch yourself to bigger retailers. So I was being steered like in a direction away from my own gut reaction, which was actually, I want to work with small businesses. And, you know, they don't have the same budget as a big retailer. But if you, you know, especially if you're offering something to several of them, then, you know, if you have a workshop, then between them, it's not about getting as much money from one individual business. And anyway, it's not all about just getting money out to people. It's not a purely financial transaction. So anyway, so I was steered towards the kind of corporate base. This person was kind of saying like, oh, you know, 
you should really pitch yourself as a consultant. And actually through my networking, I met someone who was a consultant under those circumstances. They were a freelance consultant. And I remember, and she was on maternity leave and she was having a chat with me. I remember her saying to me like, yeah, you absolutely could get picked up and do like a six month consultancy for, for some big retailer. She said, but in a way, it's not the freedom that you're looking for. Like if you really want that freedom, I would almost steer away from that. So I got lots of really good advice from lots of different people. But I think, as I said, one of the first things that started was just this networking, getting out there and talking to people. And then someone told me about, one of the people I met through this networking told me about a good Facebook group, which I'm still part of, actually. It's called Noi, which is for women. I know them. Yeah, you know them. Yeah. Paula. Yeah, Paula. Wonderful, right? And through Noi, I actually met one of the people who I'm still like, I consider my best business buddy, if you like, Elizabeth, who's a fashion brand consultant. We do loads of things together. But I met her through Noi. I think I met my first paying client through Noi, if I'm honest. I certainly met all of the people that I did the free sessions with. They all came from Noi because I just put something in there and said, look, I'm starting out so I don't have a product business would like to talk to me. I'm still in contact with some of them all these years later. And yeah, I'm pretty sure actually she came through Noi and it was someone who wanted some support with their wholesale. It was about understanding how to pitch to big retailers. So I was able to explain that from like the big retailer side, help her go through her pricing, put together the approach strategy, all of that kind of thing. So I would say really at the beginning, it was taking action and networking, networking my socks off. (laughs) It was a big part of it. And, And just telling people what I was doing. And I still do that now. Like I'm writing a book. It's one of the things I'm doing. And I found the people I'm going to work with to publish the book because I just started saying to everyone, I'm going to write a book this year. And I didn't even say like, who can you put me in contact with? I just started telling people I'm writing a book this year. And before you know it, someone said, oh, I know so-and-so. They're really great. You know, like as soon as you start talking about things, things happen. And that was how it was at the beginning. I just started talking about it. And I just networked, I networked, networked. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I always say that network your butt off. Yeah. Especially on a slow growth sector. Yeah. You know, and you're a service business. So in service business is so important because people need to really build trust. That's so important. Hey, you said something, Catherine, that caught my attention. I like digging stuff. You said... You went into a mastermind and there were two things that you got out of it. And the first one was that you knew what you didn't want your clients to feel like. What was that? (laughs) Well, it was the way that it was directed. Like the person running the mastermind was the mastermind. And we were all learning from them as opposed to a process of discovery, a process of, you know, working with someone to tease out what it is that they wanted. It was very much about their opinions about what I should or shouldn't do. I also found that they never could remember who I was. <laughs> they could never remember my name or like, you know, what I almost I had to re-explain everything every time. And I also found the whole admin process extremely lax. So it was always on me to get in contact to say, oh, should we schedule this in? And there was no, you know, nice flowing system. It, it was always like, I had to do the chasing and they also just sort of, there were some things that they said that they were going to offer that weren't offered. And it just was kind of like, it felt very much like this was all about how to make the most amount of money possible. And for me, it made me really clear that if I'm going to say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. 
I'm going to do it on time. I'm going to be respectful of the people that are working with me. I want them to really feel prepared and informed and not have to come chasing me for information. I want me to be driving the process and them feel like they're in safe hands. That it's not on them to like sort out our scheduling or things like that. Mm. So I think those were the main things. And as I said, it just was the kind of, one of the things we talked about was kind of like micro niching. And for me, I don't think I ever sat down and went, right, I need a micro niche. Right. I'm going to focus on product businesses. Actually, I'm going to focus on creative product businesses. So people who really love the products that they create. I think that for me, part of that came from, I'm really clear, like I will talk to you about what I know 100% I'm an expert in. I will talk to you about the things that I have experienced that, you know, I want to be the kind of subject matter expert, but it's always going to be tempered by what do you want as the business owner? Because as a business owner, you know your business better than anybody. I'm the industry expert. I will only talk to you about things that I feel confident that I have the authority to talk about. But ultimately, everything that I do also comes through the lens of what does success look like for the business owner? Because I was told, like, you should be doing this. It's a bad idea to do that. And actually, they were completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. It was just their opinion. And they weren't listening to what I was saying about what I wanted to do. So I am very cautious. I think listening is really, really important. And, you know, I'm very clear. I'm also clear I'm not a coach. I'm a consultant. That is a different type of skill set. But even as a consultant, I think listening is one of the key skills. Oh, yeah, definitely to not shove what you think is good down yeah. the throat of someone. And, and I agree so much with you. And I've seen this so much. And another thing that I keep seeing, which does not sit with me, is this idea of, look, I have achieved this way. Yes. So you are going to achieve it this way. The <laughs> thing is, especially in like businesses owned by women, yeah. We have so many different life components while we are running the business that what you have achieved with your life and the way you have achieved might not actually fit the other yeah. person. But I am assuming that as in retail, and I'll get to that, you know, there are basics of business and there are some fundamental stuff which are very strategic that you need to get clarity on about the business and it is to the consultant or to the coach to kind of guide you find your own clarity you know I love what you're saying is you know when you said oh someone said oh become a big consultant for big corporates it's like I always say I'm going to use bad language but, I, but like opinions are like bum holes every single person have one you know <laughs> at least and about everything you know like it's yeah it's so interesting and like they appear without you asking them. It's like when I talk about something, it's not that I ask your opinion. If you don't have any experience or knowledge about this, you don't have to have an opinion and tell me something, but people have that. So anyhow, and yeah. I so agree with what you have said. So then now I'm going to ask you a question because you are in a very wonderful space to be able to answer this. You are for the last four or five years, the owner of a service business. Yes. But you're expert in retail. Yes. What are the key differences or key success factors that differ from one to another? 
Yeah, this is such a great question. And I, I loved what you were saying as well about this whole idea of when people say, I built my business from X to Y, and I'm going to show you how you can do the same. Because you are right. I have a service business and I consult for product businesses. And I do that based on the fact I have 17 years experience. Well, I've now got 22 years experience in the yeah. retail industry. So again, going back to this is what I have the experience in. This is what I have the knowledge of. And as you say, I don't talk to service businesses, even though though I have one myself, which I've grown over the last four years, because yes, I can tell you what I did and I'm happy to share that, but I would never say I am a service business expert because I'm not. I've got one service business. I have seen hundreds of product businesses and I've worked in businesses from pre-launch all the way up to the biggest retailer I worked for had a $2 billion turnover. So (laughs) I've managed, personally managed budgets of up to 400 million pounds. So I've worked with all different sizes. I've worked in the industry. I also write for Forbes, which is very exciting, which I love to do. And so I get sent a lot of research probably every day. I'm getting two, three pieces of research about the retail industry, how it's changing, what consumers want, which I absolutely love. And I try and absorb as much as possible of that and sort of funnel it through and feed it out and let it inform the work that I do. So I'm not just going on my history. I'm also going on what I know about the way the industry is changing. So in that sense, I feel very comfortable working with product businesses in a way that I wouldn't say for a service. But fundamentally, the biggest difference between the service business and a product business, and I think one of the reasons that there is a need for product business specific information, is that product businesses and service businesses have very, very different cost structures. There are pros and cons to both types of business. The pros of running a product business are that it's very scalable. So if you have a product that works really well, you obviously, you've got to go through steps. You'll have to find a manufacturer, but you can keep going, keep going, adding products, routes to market. And you can end up at like, you know, there's somebody the size of Walmart. That's like a 200 billion, you know, dollar company. So retail businesses are scalable. They're also really tangible. So when you're talking about what you're offering your customers, you can very clearly say you will get this and you can show them photos and videos. So in a way, that's the challenge as for a service business, sometimes what you're selling is intangible. So it's harder to really like nail down what is someone getting when they work with you. Whereas for a product business, that's much simpler. On the flip side, though, a product business has a completely different cost structure. So if I run a course and I have, let's say I generate a thousand pounds of revenue from that course, I'm going to have some figures. Maybe I had an assistant who helped me Maybe I was paying some web hosting fees or the general fees involved in running a service business. If you're a product business, then right off the bat, let's say for easy math's sake, you turn over £120,000 as a product business. Right off the bat, before you even think about anything else, take off the VAT so you're getting around £100,000 net. Probably somewhere between... 35 to 50,000 pounds of that is going straight out on your product costs before you've even factored in the cost of the fulfillment, the cost of the packaging, the cost of the people in your business, all of those things. So the stock piece, which is like this huge, big piece is between a third and a half of not even sometimes more of the revenue of a business is going to end up going out on stock. So it literally makes or breaks businesses. You know, that's what really is very hard for a lot of small businesses is cash flow and stock is cash tied up in your business. So for me, if you take sort of 
for want of a better word, generic business advice that's aimed more at service-based businesses, they're ignoring the fact that product businesses, if they don't manage this huge outlay, then they're going to find it a lot harder to grow profitably. And it's very easy to sleepwalk into a problem with your stock because most people start product businesses because they love products and they love being creative. So they tend to want to bring lots of new ones in. And I've worked with quite a few businesses where they've got maybe two or three years worth of stock and they're still trying to convince me that they would need to bring in new stuff. So (laughs) those are really the challenges. It's not to say one's good and one's bad because I think there are some things that are really scalable and really fantastic about product businesses, but they do have different requirements when it comes to managing them. And, you know, as you say, I run a service business. I know what my profit margins look like compared to what they look like in a lot of product businesses. So it's really about knowing that and knowing how to manage your product business and to grow it successfully. That's a great explanation. And, you know, I love what you're saying. It's like an untangible thing that you're offering. And actually, that makes probably the sales and marketing of service business a little bit more challenging Mm -hmm. because not only you are trying to kind of grow your audience, et cetera, but you really are on a different level of marketing, you know, and also I guess there are what I call, I don't even know if there is a term like this, but, you know, there are products that you can just click and buy. Yeah. Impulse purchase. Yeah. Impulse purchase. Like it's below X amount and it doesn't hurt you. And those are the products that are great to advertise on Instagram, yes. Facebook, da da da. You yes. just click and buy. I do it. I do it myself. And I go, like, why did I why did I buy this product? Like I don't <laughs> I don't need it. But it was nice advertising and they targeted right, you know? Yeah. Um but I wouldn't click and buy a two thousand pounds worth product, you know? Um, no. then again you come into almost service business area of marketing, which is, oh, I have to trust that yes. seller. I have to trust that the product is good. You know, I have to go through a mental process of buying, yes. which in service business is much less possible because service, ultimately, you're buying into a person or into an ethic of working together. Yes, absolutely. And of course, you run a membership as well. And I've always been told this about the hardest thing to sell through cold advertising is a membership because not only is it a service but it's an ongoing commitment and I think you're right that is very different with the product business you do have the opportunity I certainly will buy something that's you know 25 30 pounds that I've seen on Instagram or through an ad and I think as well our level of trust with online purchasing has gone up massively because you know you've got things like PayPal or you've got Mm, things like mm, Shopify mm. ShopPay so now maybe five years ago you'd have thought oh I've never heard of this company before do I really want to buy from them now we've got so many kind of checks and balances and you know that if somebody doesn't send you something you can open a PayPal dispute right you know so you're you're kind of more protected and you also feel I think a lot of people when they see something like ShopPay pop up when it's another Shopify website and they've already bought from one so they've remembered who they are. They're like, oh yeah, okay, this all just feels much more legitimate. So I think our trust level of buying directly from a small retailer online has gone up massively. But I do agree with you. It's a very different proposition from when you're trying to 
build trust as a service business provider. You're right. It's not even just trust. It's like belief in their values, belief in them as a person. You're, you're sort of selling yourself in a way that I mean, a lot of product business owners do sell themselves in a way because they make connections with their audience and they go beyond the, just the product. It's about the product and the person. But I do think in, to a certain extent, the marketing is slightly simpler. I won't say simple because I'm sure product business owners listening are like, this is not that simple. But I do think you're right. It's different. It's just different, isn't it? It's different. I wouldn't say simple. I think in a product business, data is much more important, for example. Yeah. Like, you know, yes. um, whereas service business is really through a much more personalized connection that yeah. matters. So it's totally different. One thing that you said, and I'm going to do a parallel and ask you what you think about it. So you said, you know, you have your clients who are actually trying to convince you that they need a new product, although they have three <laughs> years in stock. Yeah. I can tell you something. You know what? I noticed that in the service business as well. Mm. And what I see is actually in the service business, when people face a marketing challenge, mm-hmm. they really go back. Instead of saying, hang on, this is the marketing challenge. Let's see the marketing components of it. The first thing that they do <laughs> is to go back to the product and say, it's literally like the blank paper. Hang on, this is not working. I got to do something new. Because it's, yeah. the, it's the, <laughs> you know, creative process is actually not the most difficult part of it yeah it's the fun part of it so we all tend to go oh maybe and I hear it especially people courses they sell courses or you know they sell Mm. packages or whatever they will got like oh this didn't sell let me go back and write a new thing and create a new service or whatever and I go like hang on hang on (laughs) so what if you couldn't do this you know, and you have to sell what's in your hand. Yeah, that's so true. And it's really, I think it's like, I would love to see from a behavioral psychology perspective, if actually you really go back to creating new products from service business perspectives with the yeah. same inner <laughs> pulse to, to say, hang on, I'm going to go back into my nice little cozy place of creation and do this. But the very challenging, but also very strong part of the product business, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but you know, if you don't have money, you can't go back and create another product or purchase another product to sell. Yeah. So if you have a stock of three years and then you can't actually go back and find another you know you don't have that cash and you got to sell that thing whereas with the service business it's really it's a disciplined thing because you create time because it doesn't require any cost yeah yeah that's true although I'd say what often happens in product businesses is one of the things they do is product business owners I think are particularly bad at paying themselves and paying themselves enough and one of the things that they do is they go oh well I've limped along this long without paying myself so but instead of taking that money and paying myself I'm going to buy a new item do you see what I mean so they end up doing this trade-off so there's always something you can spend your money on so I do agree with you it's it is a discipline when they've absolutely run out but then, you know, sometimes I talk to people and they've run out and then they'll be like, oh, well, I've just got these boxes of stuff. And I'm like, open the boxes up. 
let's have a look at what's in them. Like, what can you sell? And there is this thing about, it's a funny one because on the one hand, there's no doubt that having a nice steady flow of newness is a great way to start a new conversation with customers to say, hey, I've got this new launch coming out. But at the end of the day, what I say to people is if you think about the stock in your business and it's like, let's say you've got a pair of earrings and they cost 20 pounds, right? Think of them instead of those pair of earrings, think of that as a 20 pound note. And now look around your studio or your, or your office or your fulfillment center and look at all that money. <laughs> and then everyone goes, oh, okay, right. Yeah. All right. I get, cause they'll say like, I don't understand why I don't have any money. One of the other issues is that stock is counted as an asset on your accounts. So you can very easily have an end of year P&L that tells you that you made a profit and you can have no money in your bank account because the stock is listed as an asset. So they go, oh, well, yeah, you've got this asset, but it's not liquid cash. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So sometimes that's the thing. It's like it shows that you have a profit but you can't see the profit in your bank account. So once you start looking at that stock as piles of cash instead of the physical products, that is a really good incentive to get people to sell and to start selling what they've already got. But I think you're right. It does sound like a very common human sort of tendency that when maybe things aren't going so well or to always feel like the next thing is going to be the next big thing, yeah. like the next new product, the next new service, the next rebrand or the next tweak of this, that, and the other is going to be the one that pushes people, gets people to really buy or that goes viral or whatever you want to call it. But sometimes it's just about actually, no, you've got to double down. You're going to pull out those items from the boxes that you didn't sell at the time and start selling them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I keep saying it's all about sales actually. And the sales start at the product development level. When, mm. you know, your sales started when you were doing your little market research, asking people, yeah. do you need this? Because then you actually start to model your product according to the need. And many business owners, whether it's service or product, they tend to think about their product as kind of extension of what they want to sell. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's kind of like... I always say, like, think about it as you're selling a bottle of water, you are in a hot, busy street, you know, and you're selling a bottle of water. They need that. If you're trying to sell a bottle of water next to a fresh spring and a cold day, it's not going to sell. So it's not about what you want to sell. It's about the need. And it's really important to, you know, pitch your tent where there's the needs about that product. Yeah, that's love this conversation and where it is going in terms of, you know, it's like uh, we always kind of separate product and service businesses. And there's definitely separation to make in terms of, especially from what I understand and what you're saying, cash flow management. Yeah. Especially, right? And, yes. and you know, like keeping it going. Because I have met businesses that went bust because they couldn't actually stock up because they yeah. didn't have cash to buy. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's really important. But on the other hand, as a business owner, I guess like we all have same traits of, you know, comfort zone versus uncomfortable mm-hmm. places. And yeah. yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Oh, yeah, totally. And I think that... There's lots of things that do overlap with business owners across products and services. There's a lot of things that are in common. 
But that, in a way, is my specialty is almost dealing with the unique challenges that product businesses have, because that's my background. You know, that's what I did for big retailers for so many years was I work out how they actually make money and things like stock management and identifying, as you said, you can't stock up because you've run out of cash. Chances are you've got some cash in your business, but it's just trapped right now. So it's working how to free up that trapped cash, working out how to have a budget, like how much stock should you have in your business? That's a question that a lot of people really struggle to answer. Yeah. And one of the things that big retailers do differently from small businesses is that they have a budget. So we would have an end of month target for our stock levels. And the rule of thumb is if you're a merchandiser and your department always has more stock at the end of the month than it's supposed to, you get fired. So it kind of focuses your mind, right? It's no longer about, oh, can we bring this new thing in? Because the answer will just be like, you have to cancel that order if you're overstocked. And I think a lot of small businesses, they just don't look at it that way because this, why would they? I mean, it's just, this is something that's a very specialized knowledge. discipline. Yes, yeah, very specialized knowledge. And I mean, I work with people who were teachers, lawyers, civil servants, and then decided, got to a point in their life when they were like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do something more creative. And so they start a candle business or a clothing business or a kids wear business. So they're not coming from a retail background. They're not coming from that knowledge. And what they're looking at and is focusing on is sales, which it is all about sales. It's all about desirability, which for me means desirability, exactly as you said, with your example of a bottle of water. It's about knowing what your customer wants and being there when they need it. But it's just not something that's built into the way that they're thinking about it to kind of go, well, hang on a minute, how much stock have I got? Lots of people don't even keep inventory records, so they don't even necessarily know. So switching around a little bit and focusing in on things like setting yourself targets. And as you said, discipline. It's ironic. So many people start their own business because they don't want to have a boss. But then actually, sometimes what they need is that slight element of discipline that they either have to enforce upon themselves or find someone to work with who can help them enforce that as well. But it's about that discipline then about saying, right, I am going to pay myself actually, because that's really, really important for my motivation and for my long-term health of my business. And as a result, I'm going to have to be a bit more creative and I am going to have to sell the stock that I've had sitting around, which I'm maybe not excited about because uh, that's the other thing, going back to what you were saying, I think we get tired of our products and services way quicker than our customers because we see them all the time right yeah <laughs> yeah we're like oh blah 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 yeah I've seen that yeah and I would always remember when I worked in big retailers they often had like a year and a half development cycle for the products you'd see the first sample and you'd be like oh my god when that comes out I'm definitely going to buy it and then you'd sit there for like the next year and a half it would get wheeled out to each like milestone meeting and then by the time it went on sale you were like no I'm over it now I don't want it <laughs> And I think that it's like that with businesses. They go, oh, well, I can't sell that. Oh, people are bored of it. And I'm like, you know, 100 people bought it. Like, that's not very many people in the grand scheme of things. There will be people still interested. So, yeah, it's a really interesting one. It's about learning new skills about your own business and how you manage it and taking advantage of not having to reinvent the wheel and learning from people who do have that specialized knowledge. Yeah, definitely. And you are one of them. Just to kind of end on this side of the discussion before we come to the women entrepreneurship, yeah. can you give me like three top things that you teach in terms of owning a product business? Yeah, well, I think we've touched on a few of them. The first thing I always say is that the best sales strategy is a great product strategy. So it is starting exactly as you said with what your customer wants, and nothing fills me with more 
concern than when somebody goes out, creates a product. And I have actually met people who've done this and then they say, now I just have to figure out who to sell it to. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you're right. Start with a customer and create the products that they want and they need. That will always stand you in good stead. So that's number one. Number two is know your numbers. And I think there's this kind of misconception that if you're creative, then you don't, you're not terribly numerate. And I think that they're ultimately... That's not true. <laughs> Even if your, you know, year six maths teacher made you feel like you weren't any good at maths, like every business owner can look at key numbers, say the amount of stock they have, the profit margin that they're making every time they make a sale, all of those things, they're straightforward or you can find someone to help you set up a template or whatever else it is, but it's a taking ownership of the number side because it is really, really important. And then I think the third thing is just be brave and continue to keep trying new things and just keep an open mind. And I think that that's the thing that's been really hard throughout the pandemic. I mean, it's been really, really up and down a couple of years. Yeah. Some people saw their businesses explode in 2020 and then really fall back in 2021. Some of them have seen it grow all the way through 2020 and onwards. Some of them saw it just totally drop dead with the pandemic. So I think it's really been required. You know, the business is called the Resilient Retail Club. I think resilience is something that is so important. The ability to just pick yourself up and say, do you know what? It's not personal. If you launch a product that people don't love, it's okay. You know, you just have to get out there and try again and try something new and just keep going, basically. Yep. And I, you know, what I want to say, I think all these things that you're saying are also valid for service businesses. I yeah. Mean, you got to do it for your clients. You got to know their problem and what you want to solve, how you want to solve that problem, What's what makes you different. You got to know your numbers. We are in business. We, it's not, anything else. The numbers are basically what you're going to get out of your business at the end of the day. And then the resilience and, and like persistence, you know, like there's no mm -hmm. such things as dropping and not trying again. So that yeah. those are definitely great learnings for all of us. I'm going to also tell everyone that you have a podcast, right? Resilient yes. Retail Club. Is that the name of the podcast? The Resilient Retail Game Plan is Game the name plan. of the podcast. That's it. And tell us a little bit more about what do you bring to people in that podcast? Well, the podcast is a mix, so it will be a combination of I do some solo episodes where I'll talk about things like industry trends, what's coming up this year, some advice on things like how to manage price increases, for example. And then they also have a variety of guests. Sometimes it's other product business owners. Sometimes it's product business owners who may be a little further along. So I had the CEO of Papier on recently talking about their expansion into the US. And then I also have a variety of industry experts. So I love to get some really interesting perspectives. I had a CEO of a social media firm, for example, last week talking all about how social media is changing. And we've also had people talking about the metaverse, where that's going. That's all kind of crazy. Future of retail, digital fashion, all of that's business. But just in a way that I always like to bring it back to what does that mean for businesses listening now so that it's not just too all theoretical, that it's also about, okay, what does this mean for you? What should you be thinking about as a business owner? So I always like to make sure that the episodes have some really good, concrete, practical tips for product businesses as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. To be honest, I listened to a few of them. And again, I think it would inspire more than just product businesses as well. 
So we're coming towards the end of our talk, Catherine. And, you know, this is all about kind of bringing in front of our listeners relatable role models. And I do believe that the way you hold your business, the way you market your business, the way you bring value to your audience is really inspiring. And thank you for that. Everybody would definitely benefit from that. So as a woman business owner, I will ask you, what does inspire you? I think what really inspires me is creating your own vision of success. So I think there's so much noise out there, especially when you're a business owner about, you know, your six-figure business, your seven-figure business, like this, that, and the other, and, you know, hustle culture and rise and grind or whatever, you know, cheesy thing that people say. And I think that what's really powerful is when people say, you know, what is success for me? You know, what does success look like for me? And for me personally, success is that if my child gets COVID, which, you know, let's face it, it's like every few weeks at the moment, (laughs) I don't, (laughs) I have the flexibility to be like, that's fine. You know, you rest. So I've created a business that works for my life, that allows me to be home when the kids get home from now. I don't have to do the school run anymore. They're old enough. They, I don't even have to do that anymore. But when they get home, I'm there most of the time. You know, we have plans to get a puppy later in the year, which I'm very Yay! excited about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I couldn't have done that if we were working outside of the business the whole time. So for me, success, and I like to be really clear about it. Like I like to do a little visualization every so often, maybe once a year, I'll write down in three years time and I'll actually write down like a day in the life in three years time. And I'll talk about what I'm doing and the kind of work I'm doing. And it helps me stay really clear about what I'm actually trying to build because it's very easy to get sucked into comparison. It's very easy to get sucked into what you should be doing, you should be wanting. And, you know, I don't have any ambition to have a huge organization and a big office but if you do then I support that 100% Mm. I think that it's really inspiring when people are clear about what they want and what success looks like to them and success looks very different to different people and I don't think we should judge people for success being that they cover their bills in their home like that is really successful that's a heck of a lot more than a lot of people have you know who are working full-time or who are running their businesses And I don't think we should say it's wrong if success is that you want to be a household name. Like, I think there's room for both in this world, but I think it's just really inspiring when women in particular, I think, are really clear about this is what I want. These are my boundaries. This is what I'm doing. The rest of it, I can just tune this out, you know? (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah, it's that real connection to what you want, not what other people tell you you should want. Oh, that is the best the best inspiring thing I've ever heard. It's true. It's true. And I do really, really relate to it in terms of if you spend a little bit of time scrolling down the Instagram and mm. God knows I do it. And I know a lot of people do it. You get into that trap. You get yeah, into yeah. that and you really need to talk yourself out of it and go like, hang on a second, you know, you you have your life. Stop thinking about others and comparing. So uh, thank you for reminding that to us. My final two tricky questions. (laughs) So what is for you being awesome? (laughs) I think it kind of comes back to what I was talking about before. I think it's awesome. Being awesome 
And the people that I really respond to are the people who are really generous, but also have their boundaries. So they're not, you know, like they're warm people and they share their expertise freely, but at the same time, they know what they want. They're not just kind of a martyr. So that for me is being awesome and also just being really unafraid to be part of the conversation. You know, I was very, very lucky a couple of weeks ago. I got my dream podcast guest, which was Mary Porter's on my podcast, which is amazing. And I think she's a really great example. I find her very inspiring. And I really like that she talks about things that, so she talks about the kindness economy and she's sort of, and what, what it means to be a working woman. And I think that that's actually really awesome when people She's not even saying I've got all the answers. She's just trying to start a conversation about things that are important to her. And that for me is really awesome. I really enjoy that. That is amazing. And why are you awesome, Catherine? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness, this is such a hard question. Um, Okay, I guess I would say what I'm proud about. Okay, so I'm proud of the work that I do because I think I spend a lot of time, I try and spend a lot of time thinking about What's going to make my customers, so my members for my membership and my clients, what's going to make a good experience for them? I really enjoy sharing my experience. As I said, like, I really love that aha moments that people get when they realize some sort of deeper understanding their own business. That for me is really amazing. And I really enjoy being an expert about the retail industry. I really enjoy talking about it. I love talking about how it's shifting. I love talking about how it is changing and hopefully changing to a kinder, more inclusive, more ecologically minded industry from, you know, frankly, you know, it's been very toxic for a very long time. So I love playing a small part in that industry shifting and being away from these big sort of conglomerate, these big corporate behemoths who control everything to this more small businesses that are creating meaningful lives to the people who run them as well as focusing on sustainability, focusing on the supply chain, paying people fairly, all of this stuff which is so important. So for me to feel like I'm playing a small part in that is is all really awesome. Amazing. You are awesome, Catherine. Thank <laughs> you very much for being here and sharing all your expertise so openly so kindly so guys those who are listening to us Catherine founder of Resilient Retail Club and host of Resilient Retail Game Plan it's not just about retail seriously go and listen to her and connect with her we will put all her details in the show notes Catherine again thank you very much for being with me here today thank you so much for having me bye Well, my friend, thank you for listening to this She Is Awesome podcast. If you want to share your extraordinary story and dare to inspire others, send an email to hello at academyweed.com. You can find the email address in the show notes. Well, let's meet here again next week. Take care. Bye now.